What is up? What is going on, everybody? Welcome into the Threequel Podcast. This week, we are taking a deep dive into a very sick and twisted mind. We will get after it right after the song. What is going on, everyone? This is the Threequel Podcast. As always, I'm one of your co-hosts, Ethan Klein, here with my two partners in crime, Mike Duranic and Brad Miller. Guys, how are you doing today? Delightful. How about you, Mike? I'm doing great. It's uh, good to be here with you guys and uh, ready to, to get into this movie and uh, discuss discuss a, a 1990s classic. Yeah, so I just wanted to clarify, maybe in the cold open, you thought the sick and twisted mind I was referring to was Edward Norton's character in this movie. It wasn't. It was whoever took the time to leave a one-star review for this show um, and think that in any way, shape, or form, that would affect how much sleep any of us got. Uh, but, you know, thank you. Thank you for uh, leaving the comment. That's, that's much appreciated. We, we encourage everyone to leave a comment. The subject line was the best, the woof. Yeah. Woof. Well, you know, I'm going to guess that's probably the same thing he hears most women say when he tries to hit on them in public. So, you know, (laughs) he's just giving it back to us, which I I totally appreciate. So, uh, yeah, do do what he did. Leave a comment, leave a review, and and you know that you'll probably get mentioned on the show. So if if you want to join in the conversation, we always promised we'd bring you into that conversation. We just didn't say how we would do it. Uh, but that's enough of, uh, you know, the, the commentary talk about the show itself for tonight. Let's focus on what we are here to do, and that is talk Primal Fear. The movie came out in 1996. Richard Gere, Edward Norton, the first role for Edward Norton. And I'm sure we will have plenty to say about how insane it is that this is an, a debut. A de- Good Lord, <laughs> we're starting off well. Uh, this is a debut. I can't Woof. say that word. Do you guys it, ever have that? You get a word, and now it sounds weird in your head, and you can't say it? Yeah, listen, hold on. It'll roll off the tongue. It, Pappy Drew 90. There we go. Pappy debut. Drew 90. There we go. It's a debut performance. And you know what? I'm not going to cut any of that out, because it's okay for me to admit that I'm not perfect. Um. A debut performance for Edward Norton, which is fascinating uh, that he was able to do the things that he does in this film. Uh, But we'll get into that. Let's kick this off the way that we normally do. Uh, And I ask you guys the same question. How did you first stumble upon Primal Fear? And what thoughts did you carry from that experience into this rewatch this time around? Uh. For me, I I can't really recall the first time I saw it, but what I can say is that it hasn't been all that long ago. Um, It's probably been within the last five years that I watched it, um, which is saying a lot because I also couldn't really remember a lot of the plot points. Obviously, there's a big, you know, twist or reveal, if you would say, towards the end. But outside of that, I couldn't remember much of it. But um, I don't know if I had heard you talking about it, Ethan, or, you know, maybe saw it just somewhere and thought it looked interesting, but I'm a big Ed Norton fan. So um, I watched back through some of his catalog and 
checked it out. But yeah, just uh, sometime in the last few years. Mike, how about you? So I, similar to Brad, I can't pinpoint when I would have seen this before. And in fact, when I sat down to uh, rewatch this, I actually had convinced myself that I was watching it for the first time. And then I started watching it and was remembering plot points and, and was like, no, okay, I've seen this before. But what I remembered most distinctly from it was, of course, the, the Ed Norton character, the plot twist at the end, and then, you know, putting the pieces together of... I'm with Brad. I can't remember if it was a conversation with you or if it was something that I read somewhere just about the myriad of people that went up for that role um, and either in some cases turned it down or in other cases, um, you know, ended up not getting it over Ed Norton for this to be his debut performance. And so uh, what did I carry into this one? Well, it was a strange thing where I, I think I had convinced myself that I knew the movie. I knew the plot twist very well but that I hadn't seen it. But after rewatching it, I'm fairly confident at some point I did see it uh, some time ago. Uh, yeah, I believe there may be some details that I'm not 100% sure about, but as far as I remember, it was basically the casting director's last day in New York. They had gone through numerous amounts of people. I know for a fact they wanted Leonardo DiCaprio. That was their top of the line. That was who we wanted. Didn't get him. And Edward Norton was one of like the last two or three guys to walk in the room. And came up with the stammer on the spot, the stutter. Um, he came up with that on his own and was enough at the, the end of a long day to leave an impression that ended up uh, kicking off an entire career. So uh, for me, my first experience with this movie, I, I don't remember how old I was. I know, I mean, obviously I did not see it in 1996. I was uh, probably not even one when this came out. No, I wouldn't have been. Um, but I, it was on a DVD and I told Mike and Brad this last week whenever I got this DVD was when they were doing the, uh, the gimmicks of the DVD box was like in an evidence bag with like fake blood on it. Back when, you know, in the mid two thousands when they were trying to sell movies like this. And like we said, we'd prefer to just, just give us the movie, make it as cheap as possible. But uh, went into it completely blind, had no idea what the twist was, which this is one of these movies that you have to, like, if you haven't seen this, stop the podcast now this is one of those movies that you absolutely need to not know what's going to happen. And it's one of those experiences that has just stuck with me since because it was so shocking. And for a lot of reasons, what makes it so shocking is how great of a performance Edward Norton gives. And then all of the actors bouncing off of him, the emotions you feel towards his character to then have the rug pulled out from under you. That's what I remember most being angry, being impressed, being confused and has just stuck with me all this time. And then this time it gave me an opportunity to watch some other performances that I hadn't focused on as much. And I, I know that's where I'm going to be coming from a lot um, because there was a lot of things I noticed this time about other characters that I had not noticed before, but definitely been one that I've always enjoyed and enjoyed the opportunity to go back. So uh, let's start with, uh, let's actually start with Richard Gere. He is the top build actor. He is the guy on the poster um, he was absolutely the biggest star in this film when it came out. And I can honestly say, I mean, I have seen Pretty Woman a couple times on television. It's never been something that's really that I've, I've sat down and made a point to see, to know that I've seen every second of it. This, to me, is high quality acting from a guy that in my mind is 
more of just a face that was put on a lot of posters of a lot of movies. And I don't know where you guys are at with that, but it is impressive to me the performance he gives because I do not think of him as a top-of-the-line dramatic actor in his whole career. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with, uh, with with what you were saying there. In fact, as I'm re-watching this, Ethan, one of the things that I said to my wife was, man, I wonder why he didn't have a bigger or more successful career. Because watching this movie, I, I felt like, and it's not to say that he didn't have a successful career. You look through it, certainly numerous movies. But I felt like he could have played bigger, more prominent roles than he did based off of what he brings to the table in this movie. Um, and it also led to a, well, what's happened in his career in the last 20 years? And the answer is uh, not a ton. It definitely peaked there through some of those movies in the 90s and into the very early 2000s, I think. Yeah, I think uh, we're underselling his uh, ability just a little. I think that he, for a, about a 10-year stretch there, was one of the biggest movie stars there was, at least name recognition and, and some of those hits that he had. And there's uh, ladies that I've heard talking about um, like that. What is it like nights at Rodanthe or something about how good that yep. movie is? Like means nothing to me. I've never seen any part of it, but you know, ladies, my mom's age and maybe a little bit younger um, who just absolutely love Richard Gere would, would fight you tooth and nail to prove how good of an actor he is. But, um, yep. but yeah, I think definitely he he peaked. There was a a huge spike, a crescendo, and then just kind of a um, what what have you done for me lately sort of career. And um, yeah, I think that he le he left a lot to be desired as far as um, things that he could have done. You know, I could see him in those Oceans movies. Of course, he's he's too similar to George Clooney, so he couldn't have just been in that ensemble. But and he wasn't. Um, badass enough to be in you know expendables films or anything like that so he just didn't fit some of those uh um movies that they get those guys in to um to make a few bucks but good for him he you know he comes in he makes a hit and then he he leaves town yeah i think well the thought that went through my mind when i was watching this was kind of a comparison in a way to i mean obviously he did it after this so i guess mcconaughey would be comparing it to him but it's what i thought a lot about matthew mcconaughey you know he had his run with the romantic comedies very charismatic guy a very sellable face you know put matthew mcconaughey's face on a poster that movie is going to make a lot of money opening weekend for couples and romba and that's what you know richard Gere had that with the with runaway bride with officer and a gentleman and all that stuff but then Matthew McConaughey did things like the Lincoln lawyer, like true detective. And all of a sudden you kind of step back and you're like, Oh my goodness. Like this guy has some very dramatic power behind him. And that's what I think of when I watch this movie, just that I would never have expected him to be able to go toe for toe with an Academy award worthy performance that Edward Norton gives the way that he does. And it really impressed me. And it was just something I didn't think about before the rewatch, but I was thinking about constantly this time. And part of it, too, I want to save the conversation about Edward Norton for its own things. It deserves it. Part of what I noticed this time, and I'm interested to see what you guys think about this, is a very complex relationship between him and Laura Linney's character that I hadn't really remembered. But watching it this time, 
I was very impressed with the writing and with the way they displayed her character because I think that they are so much more equal than I ever remembered them being in terms of the respect they have for each other as professionals in the courtroom. And I thought it it bled into the other parts. Obviously they have a romantic thing going, but there's so much, I think underlying respect that his character has for her character, the, the war of words that they have, the tactics they have against each other. That was such an interesting part of this movie to me that I had completely forgotten about going into this rewatch. I'm sitting here, I guess, just kind of contemplating what you're saying. I, I guess you took it a couple different directions there. You said they were equals, but then you talked about it from a level of respect. Um, I don't think they were equals as far as ability. I think you could clearly see that he taught her, he mentored her. He was a few steps ahead of her the entire time in a lot of ways was using her as a, as a pawn to push his agenda, which ultimately is what backfired his ego and, and all of that backfired on him. However, I I do see what you're saying. Like, um, she, in a lot of ways, I think mirrored him, mirrored his ability to a lesser degree and what just wasn't quite smart enough or quick enough on her feet to kind of get out of the way. She should have seen that snap coming um, when she pushed his buttons, Ed Norton's buttons. Um, and maybe she did. Maybe she uh, was hiding that in her performance. Maybe that's what she wanted, was she knew that ultimately that was what's going to be what was best for them um, for him to snap and do that. But, you know, to see her fall right into his trap of, as far as pushing him to, to do that, I think it showed that, that Richard Gere was in control the whole time, but yeah, definitely from a respect standpoint in a um, honoring the, the type of courtroom that he taught her to do and to lead. I think uh, I, I kind of see your point and what you're saying there. Well, I wonder also, Brad, on the flip side, if she didn't take the the professional practice to a whole other level that he was, quite frankly, not capable of. There's the kind of underlying, why did he leave? Why did he go into, um, you know, doing this defense work? Um, but she proved a willingness to to do what she thought was right by way of the law, regardless of the consequences for herself, by the choice to enter the tape into evidence, by the decision to do that in spite of the fact that she knew that it was likely going to cost her her job. And in that sense, as certainly his protege, I think that you can make an argument that she goes beyond him by making some of those decisions that are more altruistic towards justice as opposed to just what's in her best interest. And I I think part of that because and I and this was something that I had forgotten um I guess heading into this rewatch I I just had this image in my head that he was just he was cocky overconfident in a lot of ways just very full of himself and he and it's easy to see why I remembered him as that but there's a lot more going on with his character than just he's cocky there's the drunken conversation he has with the reporter where he alludes to I did something when I worked there and I had to leave because I couldn't live with it. And that's something like what Mike was saying with the the videotape. I don't think he would have done that. Uh, If, if his boss told him not to be, he would have buried it. 
because he would have done whatever the person above him did just so he could advance his career. And it finally got to a point where he couldn't stand to be there anymore and had to leave because he didn't know who he was. And if he was going to be doing terrible things on that side, then he might as well go do it on the other side for terrible people. And I think at the end of the day, he's trying to redeem himself, which is why he wants so badly to believe that Edward Norton did not do this. He wants one time to defend someone that he knows is innocent so that he can make up for whatever crap he did when he worked for John Mahoney's character. And I think so when he does give her that tape, he knows that she's a better person than he ever was and she will do the right thing. Now it helps him, but he knows what she'll do because she won't just listen to John Mahoney's character. I think that's what I mean when I say equals to in terms of he, he never looks down on her. I think in a way he looks up to her because he does think that she's a better person than he is. Well, I think, I think in some ways you're right. I mean, and another point too, is he wasn't allowed to enter that tape in because that wasn't his, his plea. Um, and I think he alluded to that. If, if he entered that tape in, he was probably going to get that case thrown out in a mistrial, um, for taking that misstep there. But, um, yeah, it was it was uh, interesting to see, and I've got more to say on it, but it fits more into the Edward Norton discussion. Um, so maybe we can kind of segue it into that at some yeah. point. But um, but yeah, I I also I guess too like part of it is I was not a fan of the the character that Laura Linney played. Um, it was way too close to the her character in Ozark and um it made it too one-dimensional for me uh, she very much hit some of the same notes that she does in Ozark and it the irony wasn't lost on me that the guy's name is Marty too because um, hearing her say Marty it was like it was kind of stunning like oh my gosh this is just so uh similar to what I've been watching on Netflix but um yeah I don't know it was just kind of a little bit one-dimensional for me and I would have liked to see a little more range in her character. Um, she's just always angry and always like trying to prove herself. And I, I, I need to see a little bit more from that character to really appreciate the job that she did in that film. Yeah. And, and for me to your, you had raised another question, Brad, which was, you know, did she anticipate um, the 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 flip on the stand from Ed Norton's character. I don't think I don't think that she did, um, but I don't know that it would have it would have mattered much. I did. I had more of an appreciation for her character. I haven't seen Ozark yet. I've been saving uh, that for the right moment. Uh, it's definitely on my watch list, uh, so I don't have that as a point of comparison. But I perceived her character to be really stuck between, you know, she's going up against her protege, and she is. Uh, you know, not her, she is the protege, excuse me. She's going up against her mentor. She's got all that pressure. She's got her bosses and her boss's boss and all of that pressure. And she's really stuck kind of in an unwinnable situation. The moment that it becomes obvious that this isn't just going to basically be a, I plead guilty situation. And even in that situation, there's the, the complicating factor uh, regarding the fact that even a plea, they would only plea if they were going to get to something less than the death penalty and her boss has already said anything less than that's going to be a failure. Right. So the anger that you saw, I kind of took as being portrayed due to those reasons. And so maybe it just played a little bit better for me. 
It was definitely a, an interesting experience going back and uh, seeing John Mahoney as just a vile, terrible person. Because if I see him, I instantly think of Frazier and him just being, you know, Frazier's dad and him, him being a bad guy just doesn't sit right with me. And, but he does a, he does a really good job. You hate him every time he's on screen. Um, I guess. The- and, and- I was just also going to say, just uh, in that same thing, since we probably won't go deep into his character, but another solid character performance by Terry O'Quinn here. Uh, always enjoy him when he's uh, when he's on the screen, uh, no matter how big the role. Yeah, the ancillary characters in this, I mean, this is a, a, a really deep cast list. I mean, you have a young Andre Brower, who's gone on to have a very successful career. I mean, obviously now he is uh, one of the stars of Brooklyn Nine-Nines, and, I mean, and he's had a wide-ranging career there. Um, I'm blanking on the, um, Moria, Mora Tierney, the, the other legal age, she's been around forever doing things, uh, Alfred Woodard as the judge. And then, um, Fran- the other big one, Francis McDormand. That's yeah. Francis McDormand, the same year that she wins best actress for Fargo does this. And it's, I mean, she, cause well, and obviously in Fargo too, her character's pregnant, but just looks so widely different, carries herself so widely different. She is far and away one of the most talented actresses of her generation to be able to lead a movie like Fargo, to win an award like that. And then to come in and have what 15 minutes of screen time, if that in this movie and knock it out of the park, hits every note she has to perfectly doesn't take over the scenes just as there does her job goes through. So that, that does leave one person left to talk about. So, Let's talk about him. He, again, first performance on screen, Edward Norton here, gets nominated for Best Supporting Actor. I don't know if Brad will try to, like, crawl through the the microphones here and come attack me for this. I think got robbed for the award of Best Supporting Actor. Do you know who he lost to, Brad? We're going to – I'm not going to give you guys a trivia question tonight. We're we're changing some things a little bit here. Uh, One of those things – I don't know if we're going to do trivia, but do you know who he lost to? I, I do not. He lost to Cuba Gooding Jr. and Jerry Maguire. And I I will die on the hill of the entire performance here is better than 30 seconds of Show Me the Money, which is really what drove the 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 victory there for, for Cuba. Um I mean no, I'm not gonna crawl through the screen and and make a big stink over over that i think that it's two completely different types of characters i don't know that i would say robbed um i think that that uh, cuba gooding jr was fantastic in jerry Maguire. i think that he was actually more multifaceted in that than came across um and in a lot of ways carried that film um and played off some of the emotion that uh jerry um I guess had to leave out to show kind of how low he had gotten. Um, so I think that he had a great performance and I think what, what cost Ed Norton there is probably less screen time than Cuba Gooding Jr. And the fact that it was his first film and maybe people just didn't really know or appreciate how good it really was. And the fact that in all honesty, like, you know, he was up against Richard Gere there as far as like, you know, owning the scenes and things like that. And, Yes, he held his own, but for all intents and purposes, you walk away from this film thinking it is a, a 
a Richard Gere film more than an Ed Norton film. Um, at least I did, but fantastic job. But out, outside of, uh, you know, three or four iconic scenes, I don't know um, that I, I, I would make the argument that, that he deserved it more than, than Cuba Gooding, but um, both, both great performances in, in my book. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree more with Ethan on the if I'm just putting them pound for pound and just their performances against each other. I think Ed Norton's uh, performance had a lot more nuance and it was a, a much more complex character. I agree with you, Brad, that there was more depth than meets the eye um, on Cuba's uh, character and Jerry Maguire. The one thing I'll say, however, is if you stack these movies against each other, because I, I don't believe that they look at these performances in isolation from their movies. I think Jerry Maguire is a more rewatchable movie, probably at the time, certainly was a more popular movie. And you did have the star power of Tom Cruise moving that forward. And for all that Richard Gere was at this time, Tom Cruise was obviously that and then much more so. And so it doesn't surprise me that the award went to Gooding Jr., even though I, I do agree Ed Norton's performance in isolation, I think, is probably more impressive. Yeah, and, and to agree with your point, Ethan, the point I was going to make in my rewatch, um, that the ability that Ed Norton did here, like his acting performance was so subtly perfect that as I'm rewatching it, you can tell by his acting that he's faking the the schizophrenia or multiple personality, or I forget how, how they were labeling it exactly, but um, he did it so well that you could tell he was reading the person in the room and pausing when they would ask him something to see how he could answer. Like he did so great with the stammer and the pause and that he would repeat a question that he was asked numerous times as, as Aaron. And at first it's like, well, that's just because he's shy. That's because he's, he's timid. But then as with those comments he made at the end by, I thought you knew, I thought we were, we were dancing there. We were together in this, like he was pausing there to read. Okay. What does this person want me to do? Or what do I need to do to stay quote unquote fake in this scenario? And it was so good that like, you wonder why, the therapist missed it. You wonder what, what she was not seeing there to be fully convinced that he was, was clinically insane or, and they, they said psychopath in the film too, but Mike, I see that you might have a point with, or, or something to interject there. Well, I, I you know, all I was going to say on that is what, what did the therapist miss? I think, you know, at this time, they, they referred to it as multiple personality disorder. In today's uh, day and age, we refer to it as um, dissociative identity disorder. But the field back in the 90s, the field now is extremely split as to whether this, this diagnosis is even a valid diagnosis. And I think that there's a good chunk of the mental health field that, um, for lack of a better term, gets very intrigued when there's a, an individual who's presenting with those symptoms. And so I mean, it is the danger that I think in the mental health field or in the medical field, you can have the same thing where if you're not careful with some of those outlying diagnoses, you can start to view things for things that, that kind of fit that descriptor as opposed to accurately assessing it uh, 
setting out. But I agree with you, Brad, like wholeheartedly, the nuance he, he portrayed in this, it was almost as if he was so committed to acting it out in the movie that you could see the seams there from our perception where the characters inside of the movie couldn't see it. Yeah. I, I think that in some ways people would say, Oh, if you could see those flaws that that was bad acting, but I think he made the, the perfect choice to say, you know what? Like I'm going to show that I'm a person faking this disorder and he left those little holes there on purpose. And it was done so well because I, especially in the courtroom, when Richard Gere grabs that microphone and they lock eyes, you can see it in his eyes that he's like, okay, what am I supposed to do here? Like he wants me to snap. How do I snap and make it seem real? Like this is going to help me, but it's going to help him do this. Like he, he said it exactly right. We, we were dancing there, but as he's being asked questions by the, the therapist and by Richard Gere earlier on, I, I, it started to hit me like he's repeating the question so he can take those few extra moments to play it through his head. What do I say here? How do I keep this going? Um, and he it was perfect. I mean, absolutely perfect how how he played that. I, there's no way that he or anyone else could have done that better. And and yes, that is a shout out at. um Daniel Day-Lewis, it is a shout-out to nobody. Nobody could have done it better. <laughs> Sorry, Ethan had to. <laughs> well, shitty joke aside, um, I think it's no, – But I'm, when you mentioned Daniel Day-Lewis, this is one of those things that it required someone that we didn't know. I really, I really believe that. You know, someone like Daniel Day-Lewis or who – there was just this perfect storm of we had no idea. Well, I say we obviously like, I, again, I didn't see this in April of 96, but no one knew who this guy was. He was just a nobody kid from nowhere. When he introduces himself as stammering Aaron Stampler from Kentucky, that is who he is. There is nothing else to associate him with. And, when he is Aaron Stampler, and what I said when I said, like, the first time I saw this, I was frustrated, right? Everything shows you that he has done this. There is no way that he got framed. There's there's no even side story where there could be the notion that he got framed. Yes, he says there was someone else in the room, but it's not like they leave breadcrumbs throughout the movie that, oh, maybe there was someone else in the room. It's blatantly obvious he did this, and yet the performance he gives when he is Aaron, you don't want it to be true because he's so scared. He is so innocent. You feel awful for him that he is going through this. He makes you feel awful for him. And then even when there is the reveal halfway through the movie that there, that Roy is there, in some ways you start to feel even worse for him because all of the other characters are saying this kid doesn't deserve to die. He deserves help. And you start to buy into that. And then at the end, when it is revealed what what he truly is and what he has done, that's when I said the first time I saw this, I was mad because I had become so invested in Aaron and Aaron wasn't even real. It was always just this person, Roy. And something I noticed this time, like Brad, when you were saying kind of the breaks in his acting that and I think this is something that could be misconstrued. And I never noticed this before when. Richard Gere goes into the jail cell to talk to him right before the reveal. 
the first thing he says, his accent is wrong. He stutters like Aaron, but he sounds like Roy. The first sentence he has when he walks in there. And then you can see it on his face. He catches himself and switch backs to Aaron. And Richard Gere doesn't notice it at that time. But that's such perfect acting because he wants so badly to let everyone know that he beat them. It's not just about getting away with it. He wants Richard Gere to know what happened. He wants to be able to gloat at what he did. And the fact that he breaks that accent and then goes back to it when he realizes what he did, that is that was so perfect. That right there, that's not my favorite scene. Maybe my favorite scene. We'll get to that later. But that is my favorite moment of the movie, that he had the, the thought to do that and then go back. I think it's perfect. Well, I mean, you know, I'm sure that, uh, that you guys probably both have thoughts on this. I want to throw it out to you. First four years of his career, and there were probably other parts, but starting with this, Rounders, American History X, and Fight Club. I mean, he could have he could have stopped right there and would have been an iconic actor in so many ways, right? He, yeah. I mean, I don't know if this was gonna be where you're going with this if you're saying like first four versus the rest of his career the start that he had isn't matched by many and i don't think he's ever come close to the start that he had personally well and and you know that is kind of where i was going but at the same time when you set the 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 kind of peak for what you do that high I mean, most actors are not going to have a four movie run of that caliber uh, in their entire career. And to come right out of the gate with that, you know, it, I do think it's it's one of those things I wonder, well, why isn't there another run like that in him? But do many actors have a run like that? I don't know. Brad, what are what are your thoughts? Um, I think I mean, there was a stretch of, of my life where I would have told people that Edward Norton is my favorite actor. Um but I think in a lot of ways, it's because of those first five or six films, you know, um, he kind of lost me there, at the the death to smoochie range, you know, um, but, you know, stuff like Italian Job and Illusionist, you know, there's things like that. Incredible Hulk can go away and never be seen again. But um, but since, yeah, his early career, there just hasn't been anything, at least for me, that that really stands out. Um, I think that, uh, you know, he's in good movies such as like, like Birdman and things like that, which, you know, that's going to be, a uh, it's, you know, that's Michael Keaton's movie, not his, but, um, it, yeah, I, I think that I don't, I don't know that he would ever be able to match that. Um, but to, to his credit, I don't think that there's too many people, if any, that can say they had a four or five movie stretch that was that perfect um, to to come right out of the gate swinging like that. Um, yeah, just just fantastic. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would agree with you, Brad. I actually there was definitely a point when I really first started really getting into movies, becoming a movie nerd. He was my favorite actor. And it was because within probably a two year stretch. I, you know, was going back and seeing movies that I thought I needed to see. And I watched this Fight Club, American History X, uh, Red Dragon, which I think is really underrated. Obviously, it's not as great as Science of the Lambs, but I think it's still a really, really good movie. 
And then, you know, I loved the Italian job for what it was for being the action movie that it was. And so for me seeing those movies all in one shot, I was like, this is great. I need to see everything he was in. And then I started watching things like keeping the faith and death to smoochie. And then, okay, so he is human, but I, I fully agree with what you said there to have the start that he had. There's not a lot of actors or actresses that can put a four or five movie run like that and have it be equal. I mean, I don't know what you guys are doing this Saturday, but maybe we should uh, call up Pappy Drew 90 and go watch the sausage party. I mean, if we're going to celebrate Ed Norton's career, that's maybe the way we should go. Um, and maybe when we're all done, we could say, hey, what'd you think of that movie? And it's woof. You know, I that's the the intelligence level that Pappy Drew can understand. So we'll just kind of keep it at that, right? I mean, actually, I was kind of holding it out, like, well, I wasn't yeah. Was, out where, where'd you go? Party. Where were you going with that? Um, <laughs> I was kind of waiting. Sausage Party is my favorite Edward Norton movie for oh. sure. So uh, that, I just wanted to surprise you guys with that. Um, no, I'm kidding. That's a one of those movies that I watched and laughed at, but admitted it should have never been made and should never be seen again. Great assessment. That is very true. Yeah. I'll, I'll take both of your assessments on that. And I've, uh, I'll, I've actually uh, never seen it. So I, okay. well then I'll, I'll take Ethan's assessment uh, with, and I will, I will follow your recommendations and yeah. never watch it. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> all right. So, you know, we've gone through all of this. I guess I do want to ask one question because we've, we've had conversations about, and we've kind of alluded to this. Is he even more psychotic because he's not, or because he doesn't have multiple personality disorder, whatever the correct clinical phrase is. He, he's even more crazy just to throw the term out there because he faked all of it. Right. If you're just, if you're just gauging how insane someone so, is, the ability to fake that. Um, I'll, I'll answer this and then I'll let Mike, the real professional at this kind of give me a better understanding of uh, what's, what's actually going on here. But I don't, I don't know that I would make the argument that he's insane. I, I think that um, taking it from a victim standpoint, the amount of abuse that they talked about him going through, the stuff that he was forced to do um, by this priest, um, the stuff that they allude to with his father, um, can, can make you understand how someone would snap. Um, to be a psychopath, you, you know, it's a lack of morals. It's a lack of uh, empathy. And I don't necessarily think that he lacks those things. I think that he was pushed to a point of like, um, this is what has to happen to these people. Now, whatever he did to that, the girl, um, they weren't very clear on. So maybe, I mean, he definitely borders on um, uh, psychopath and he borders on um, insanity there with, with that. But as far as um, the victim stuff, uh, I, I guess I don't know that I could go there, but I, I am curious to see what Mike would say on that. I, I think that you did a great job describing that, Brad. You know, it, it, the tough thing sitting on the outside looking in from a movie like this is that, you know, you have to ask yourself how much of what he told, you know, uh, Dr. Arrington, uh, Francis McDermott's character is based in reality how much of what he told her about his past 
is a part of the fiction for the character that he was playing, right? And, and so we can't know that. But, um, you know, I think when you're trying to ask yourself an individual with multiple personality disorder versus someone who is acting this way as a part of a survival mechanism because they've been abused, they've been neglected, um, I, I don't know that uh, that I would say you place a, a value judgment on which one is, you know, more more ill necessarily. But I, I do think that it does lead to the question again of of how much of his past is the truth in this character, how much of it was made up to augment the character he was trying to play. Yeah, I think another important factor in this is like this is his only way out. You know, this is his only way to not get the death penalty is to think this through. You know, like there's nothing to say that he, um, maybe he's just a genius. You know, like it, it may not be an insanity thing. It, it could be, hey, what happened to me pushed me to this. I snapped. And my only way out of this is to fake this and he's just one step ahead i mean they show in his cell he's got all those books he's clearly a reader he's intelligent um and he stays one step ahead of everybody and he he could read richard gear in those first few minutes of meeting him and realizing that this guy has the ego and the narcissism that i need to not notice what's going on here he's going to be so worried about a victory and so worried about all these other things that uh, he's not going to notice this and he just kind of outplays him. So I don't even know that it's necessarily a, a, a mental illness. I think maybe he's just that smart and he knew I have to fake this to get this. So he fakes the insanity. He fakes the psychopathy and like just stays one step ahead of him. So um, yeah, as far as the, the murder of, of the guy and, obviously no murder is justifiable but at least you can understand when when you're abused like that uh, especially in a in a sexual way you have no idea what that's going to do to that person and and how they're going to react and it, it's easily explained why he would feel like that that priest needed to to die right and so i mean i think because he does say at the end when when he does reveal you know everything to richard gear he's just so casual about murdering the girl. And if you take that line out of the movie, I think we end up having a conversation about how this guy is a genius. That priest was scum of the earth. He found a way to do this and get away with it from a movie perspective. I'm impressed, but it's just for me that one line he gives about like, that eh, she needed to die. He says it a little more aggressively than that, I'm, you know, but that line is what takes him from charismatic anti-hero to also a terrible person. I agree with you. I, upon reflection, I really think that particularly the comment about uh, killing Linda uh, at a minimum puts him into as a character, the same discussion with uh, to shot back to one of our earlier films like a Hannibal Lecter where he may in fact be a genius being able to play all of these things but um, there's something pretty not good uh, that that is manifesting in the guy uh, yeah I think uh, I don't know how much more we can say about it. I think that pretty much covers every thought I had about Edward Norton his performance and that so let's 
shift gears here. Like I said, we're changing things up a little bit uh, here on the threequel. So we're just going to get right into uh, – we are still going to do the Rotten Tomatoes game because I think this does offer up another quick, interesting conversation we can have. So uh, I think Mike goes first this week. Uh, whoever's closest and within three – no, Brad goes first this week because Brad snaked you last week. I keep making. You, I keep you also keep saying. You also it's, keep it's saying red. you're going to write this down. But yeah. for the record, I have never snaked Mike. Yeah. Uh, so Brad, what do you think the sitting Rotten Tomato score is for critics? Um, well, this was the number I was going to go with, but playing off the theme of this show, I'm going to give it a solid Pappy Drew ninety. Ninety. Okay, Mike. Wow. Well, Brad, you're on a very different plane than I was on this. So for once, we're just going to one of us is going to be right. One of us is going to be wrong. Uh, I was I, I what I need to do is write down all of the prior ones because I keep on trying to place this against the other scores from prior movies. And then I can never remember which ones were high and which ones were low. Uh, for whatever reason, this one was sitting to me as a solid uh, a solid C. And so within that, I'm going to go with a 74. So Mike is going to win. Uh, it is sitting at 76 right now on Rotten Tomatoes. All right. Let's wrap it up. Let's get into our last couple things here. Uh, favorite line, favorite scene. Uh, I'll start with favorite line. Um, I'll go first. I don't, I don't go first often with this. My favorite line is uh, it comes when uh, Marty first meets Aaron Roy, and he says, I don't have to believe you. I don't care if you're innocent. I'm your mother, your father, your priest, your best friend. And the reason that's my favorite line is, like I said earlier, I think he's lying to himself when he says that. I think he does care that he's innocent. I think he wants so badly to redeem himself by finding someone that's innocent. Now, at this point, all he sees is a kid covered in blood. He has no idea if he is or not. But he's walking in there hoping against hope that someday he can redeem himself. And he and just the way he delivers that line, he just kind of, you know, he's putting this kid in a corner telling him this is how it's going to be. You you don't talk. I do talk. And I just think it's it, it encapsulates his character very, very well, kind of the persona he's creating for himself of power uh, that, that he builds there. So that's my favorite line of the film. I, I didn't have a particular favorite line, but my favorite uh, dialogue would have been that, that dinner scene between uh, um, John Mahoney and, and Richard Gere um, when they're kind of doing the power play. Um, I just, I just like how that whole thing went down. Um, so I, there wasn't a particular thing that was said. I just really enjoyed that interaction. Yeah. I, my favorite, uh, dialogue was, uh, the first day of law school professor says two things, right? From this day <laughs> forward, when your mother tells you she loves you, get a second opinion. Uh, and then the, the second one about, uh, justice and then, you know, going to court and whatnot, I, I won't earmuff it fully and, and read it out loud, but, uh, that one was, it was a good line. That, that it was, um, favorite scene. You know, I said, maybe it wasn't, but the more I thought about it, how can it be? My favorite scene is just the final scene. Um, just the movie culminates to it. And I don't know if you guys have anything different, or if you'll add it, but just, that's what we've built to this entire time. The reveal, the shock on Richard Gere's face that turns to anger. Maybe part of him's impressed. I, you know, he just doesn't know how to handle what he's seeing. He's had this great success. It's taken away from him. The cockiness that Edward Norton is finally able to display in that moment. The, like Brad said, the line about we were dancing, we were moving, like that whole thing. Perfect scene. If you want a perfect five minutes in film, that's one of them. Yeah, I think that um, outside of that, the 
in the courtroom where you can see him reading the reading the the eyes of Richard Gere um, before he gets his buttons pushed by Laura Linney and jumping that like that. That's another one. But subtle shout out here. Uh, I think it's just under or unheralded maybe is the right word. The uh, nonverbal acting that Andre Brower does in this film is fantastic his eye rolls when he puts his he puts his tongue in his cheek when he doesn't believe what richard Gere's saying and the whole like you freaking idiot you know this guy killed him like why why are we going down this path like he he's so fantastic in this film i really like uh brooklyn 99 so andre brower's a, a favorite of mine but um yeah just shout out to him and his ability to non-verbally act in this film yeah, I, I agree, and I think the best scene has, has got to be that last scene. Uh, my special my honorable mention would be for the recess um, after the bailiff has taken Ed Norton's character back into custody when the judge pulls them uh, back into the chambers, pours the three what I presume are whiskeys. Richard Gere turns it down, but just the entire interaction there between uh, the judge and between the two attorneys, I, I enjoyed a great deal as well. I, I'm a, a John Grisham legal thriller fan. And so that's the kind of stuff that Grisham does a great job in his novels kind of illustrating. And, yeah. And I, I love the fact that um, Richard Gere and Laura Linney's character didn't hook up or kiss in any way. Like I love the fact, cause it would have been so easy, especially with Richard Gere in there to just have her, you know, in a way, give in and accept the romance that they did have at one time that didn't need to happen. And I'm so glad that they skipped the opportunity to do that and, and, and let her have at least that little piece of dignity after what she had gone through. Cause that would have totally undermined her character. And, and I'm glad they didn't do that, which is something nineties movies uh, would have easily done. Uh, one last thing, stamp of approval. I think, seems pretty obvious but it's definitely obvious for me 100 percent stamp of approval like i said if you hadn't seen it and you've listened to this whole thing you just ruined it for yourself if you have seen it go back and watch it again because as we've had this whole conversation there's so many little things that you can notice in this movie i agree with mike love john grisham love courtroom films uh through and through i i, I was reminded watching this how much i love courtroom drama i don't know why but when you do it right there's just something extra that you get out of it and this one uh, hits it out of the park. So stamp of approval for me. Yeah, um, I absolutely agree. Uh, I absolutely give it my stamp of approval. A, a really great uh, movie, certainly, as we mentioned, an iconic performance by Ed Norton. And if for no other reason than that alone, all those we've talked about for so much more, uh, give it my, my thumbs up for sure. All right, three for three. So we say, if you haven't seen it, go see it. If you have, check it out again. Thank you so much for joining us this week on the threequel podcast. That was our discussion of primal fear next week. We are absolutely changing gears. We're going with Mike's pick for the month of April. And that is captain America, the winter soldier. Um, and I think an absolute genre bending film so much more than just a standard comic book movie. We will get into all of that next week with that. This was primal fear. Join the conversation. Like I said, if you leave a comment, odds are we're going to talk about it. Again, I can't promise you what I'm going to say, but we're going to talk about it. Uh, but we appreciate everyone listening. Uh, we're, we're, we are going to be making a few changes to the podcast, uh, but it's still going to be the three of us talking about movies that we love to talk about. So other than that, for Mike Duranik, for Papi Drew 90, Brad Miller, 
or Pappy Drew 90 and his failed love life. We'll see you next time. <laughs>